0: I had one kid that was at that point like a month and a half old and they, they, the kid was having all sorts of problems feeding, you know, would feed for feed for such short periods of time was being treated for reflux. They weren't sure what it was. They saw me. Um, and I can't even remember the the exact complaint. I think that it was, it was being interpreted as difficulty swallowing for whatever reason, it wasn't presenting as classic um, tongue tie, just latching difficulties. And so in the process of my evaluation, I, and, and, you know, mom had been getting no sleep. So you, you know, how, how frayed you can be from getting no sleep. And this was a month and a half of mom getting no sleep because kid was just couldn't feed for that long and then would wake up again and not feed for that. And she was just at her wit's end. And, um, in the course of my evaluation, I noticed there was, there was a tongue tie. So I said, you know what? I don't know if this is it. I don't know. Could be. Maybe. Maybe not. And I cut it. Kid fed. Mom was crying. Crying because it had such a a profound... She's like, this is the longest she's ever fed. This is the longest she's ever fed. I've never... I... This is... This This might be... Uh, I said, I, I don't know if this is it. I still don't know if this is it, you know we'll check back in in a couple of days and i and i called her a couple of days later and she was just so effusive because like i had you know turned things around so so completely and it was just cuz what did i do stuck my finger under the kid's tongue cut it cut the tongue tie with a little scissor and that was it so um Yeah. So that's the type, uh, that's, that's, that's one thing that we see very commonly tongue tie. It seems pretty simple and pretty straightforward. And it is, especially in a four day old, right? The way that I do it is with a scissor. I just stick my finger, gloved finger underneath their tongue and uh, snip it with a scissor and have the mom. I don't numb it so that they can breastfeed because the reason to do it, the main reason to do it is, is if there's difficulty breastfeeding. Kids not kids having some trouble latching they're not latching it hurts too much mom's nipples bleeding because because the kid's not latching correctly um and uh and it's you know it's, it's a couple second procedure and then you have mom breastfeed straight away it calms the kid down it pushes the tongue down so it stops any bleeding and then they're fi- they breastfeeding and it's and it's great and it's very simple and again this is kind of like what the specialty is for me it's simple it's easy and the outcomes are good life-changing. Now mom can breastfeed. She wasn't able to breastfeed. She thought she would, she she wanted to, but she thought she was going to have to go on, the kid was going to have to go on formula and, which is fine too, right? But uh, they now have this other choice available to them.
1: Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine.
2: My guest today is Dr. Bradley Block, ear, nose, and throat surgeon who sees adults and children and is based in New York. He's also the creator and host of the podcast, The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming along. So, I always like to start by having you tell me a little bit about not just your background in medicine but in fact a bit about you growing up your story.
0: Oh, interesting. Um my story uh I, I think of as the opposite of interesting. I grew up as a uh, you know on Long Island, which is where I ended up where I where I practice now. Um the suburbs suburbs of New York City um somewhat diverse town, although Long Island, one thing it's famous for is the, its lack of diversity or rather um, being very segregated, segregated by both religion, uh, race and religion. But my, my town happened to be pretty diverse, both uh, ethnically and economically, which was obviously a great experience growing up and, and very important. Um, yeah. Uh, middle, upper middle class, middle class upbringing. Um, didn't really make the decision to go into medicine early on. We didn't have any physicians in our family, um, but always very into science. And when you're into science, it, you know, I don't know how many options you really realize are out there. So when I was studying abroad, one of my friends, he was going into medicine and I thought, hey, that sounds like a reasonable thing to do. I don't have any other ideas right now. I know everybody has their path of I knew from a very young age that I was going to be a healer, like it's something profound that's just in them. First, I don't know if it's the best idea having an eight-year-old make career decisions for you. So my eight-year-old self, I was probably torn between cowboy, fireman, and dinosaur. So if my eight-year-old self had uh, had followed that, I wouldn't have ended up on this path. But So I, so I made the decision rather late. Um, I was actually studying abroad in Jerusalem at the time, which if you've never been, uh, can have a profound effect on the soul. So that's, that's the other thing that happened to me is it it gave me a little perspective. I really don't, didn't have much, much of a path and it, and it, and it showed me that I should maybe take my life's trajectory a little more seriously. Um, and that was the other reason for, for choosing medicine. That was really the main reason for choosing medicine. That, that's what set me on this path. So I w- was a late decider. didn't decide until junior year in college, which meant I, I couldn't apply straight away. had to ful- fulfill some requirements and then applied and thankfully made it in. Tell me what really clinched
2: it for you with becoming, uh, deciding that you were going to be a doctor. I mean, it sounds like you, you like the sciences. Um, you like the, the quantitative uh, sp- subjects. What was it that was the turning point where you said yep yeah, that's I'm gonna really be serious about this that's what I'm gonna do
0: yeah so part of it was that was was just being in in Jerusalem and wanting to to have some importance to what I do and uh um you know I know I knew I was strong academically so you know I uh, was thinking you know use my powers for good not not that I'm some you know profound academic actually quite the opposite it's not like I, I prolific publisher of papers or something like that but but um but yeah I, I decided i wanted my life to have some some positive trajectory rather than just being focused on what a lot of people that at penn at the time were studying which is going into investment banking uh you know i graduated in in 2001 which is uh before the the the, the dot com bubble so you know people were making hand over fist in investment banking uh, and then it and then that all just evaporated. So, so that was the path that everybody seemed. They were either consultants or investment bankers. So I figured I would be in uh, some like biomedical consulting field. Great, use the sciences, but really business. And and then decided that you know what I wanted something a little more important. But the other thing was that I didn't really have a path. And so that gave me a path. It sounds like a little bit like a cop out, right? Like. Well, I'm going to be a doctor because what else am I going to do, right? But that's kind of what happened too, right? I didn't have some profound path. It was more like I don't know. I'm, I'm good at sciencey stuff, so doctor sounds reasonable. And so there, there it happened. It wasn't it wasn't anything profound. It was quite the opposite.
2: And so you ended up you moved to the warmer climes of uh, SUNY Buffalo.
0: Yeah. So. Yep. So that, that uh, also, you know, I was a little arrogant in my uh, applications and that I really only applied to like, you know, top, top schools and, and, and the SUNY schools. And I was lucky to get into SUNY Buffalo. Right. So, so it turns out my, my sights were a little too high and I ended up getting into SUNY Buffalo. And if I'm remembering correctly, off the wait list. So you know, made it into medical. Yes, definitely off the wait list, made it into medical school by the skin of my teeth. Um, and I had taken a year off. I actually, I, I worked for a year between college and medical school, which what sounds like a very glamorous life, but wasn't. I was a bartender and a personal trainer, and I taught Kaplan MCAT classes. So I was a little delayed in my uh, in my application because I did fulfill some requirements. So I had to take that year off. But taking that year off, um made me take academics a lot more seriously so that first year i just really put my nose to the grindstone and did very well uh i took my foot off the gas a little bit after that but you know i couldn't take it very much off the gas and have uh ended up uh, matching into otolaryngology because it was you know it's a very competitive specialty and it it has become much more competitive since i mean the, the competition just keeps keeps growing but i think i'm getting getting ahead of things in terms of uh
2: where where you're taking the interview? Tell me how it was that you came to think about otolaryngology. What you know when you were a medical student and you started thinking was it in your MS two year that you started to think about what you wanted to do or is it earlier than that?
0: Um, no, it was it was actually the second uh, second year. Uh, it was brought to my attention by one of my closest friends. Still remains one of my closest friends to this day and is actually one of my partners, because we both ended up going into otolaryngology. He said, you should check this out. It looks pretty cool. Um, because, And the thing that that we both really liked about it is we do a lot of interesting things that are pretty varied. So as an otolaryngologist, we do a lot of office procedures. Uh, we do things that are pretty minimally invasive, but can have a big impact. There are subspecialties with, within otolaryngology that are more say maximally invasive, like head and neck cancer, where you're really doing big heroic surgeries. But a lot of the stuff we do is, you know, taking out tonsils and adenoids, septums, sinus surgeries, vocal cord surgery, neck masses, you know, more benign neck masses, malignant neck masses. Now you're talking about a neck dissection, which, which is, which is um, I, interestingly, you kind of open up the neck like a book. And then one of the things that I found remarkable about the specialty is you, you can do that and then you sew it back together and it looks the same. So you have someone in the operating room who looks just so different in the middle of an operation. And, and then by the end of the operation, they're just, you know, back to the person that 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 they were before, um, you know, less some lymph nodes. So, um, so he introduced me to that and the variety of what we treat. You know, we can treat a four-day-old for tongue-tie. Maybe a one-month-old from Malaysia, and maybe a ninety-year-old who's having dizziness or swallowing difficulties. So the the age range is huge. The pathology is very different. And then once you decide that you want to go into ENT, something I didn't realize but now do, is the type of practice that you can have varies really widely. You can be in private practice like I am and see all of those different varieties of of problems, or you can go into academics and become a super specialist and just do sinus problems or just do head and neck cancer, or just do voice and swallowing. Um, and then if you're at the academic center versus the community, the type of the complexity of the stuff that you see is very different. So if you want to see that those uber complicated patients and, you know, you're at an academic center. So, you know, the, the one thing that, that I think medical students don't realize is that, you know, when you've chosen your specialty, the variety of practice within that specialty can still be huge. The other thing that I didn't realize is how different my life would be from that of a resident. Now I know work hours are very different, responsibilities are very different, but that like the type of pathology that I see as as a generalist out in the community is very different from the stuff that I was seeing in the uh, in the academic center at, at Georgetown and Washington Hospital Center.
2: So how did you make your choice?
0: You mean to do ENT and not, uh, well, so, so, you know, I still liked working with kids. And so I did, uh, uh, so then, so my path was at that point was pediatrics. I was, I was still going to be a pediatric cardiologist, pediatrics. That was, that was the way to go. Um, And we have our, we had our elective rotation. My first choice selective was ophthalmology because eyeballs grossed me out. Eyeballs still gross me out. And I don't understand how someone can have cataract surgery and be looking at the doctor while they're operating on their eye. So what I didn't want to do as a pediatrician is like see a kid with an eye injury and then end up like, like, you know, <laughs> turning all pale and ashy uh, and, right. and passing right. out on my patient. So I wanted to get over the heebie-jeebies. So I was going to do an, uh, an ophthalo rotation and then get over it, right? Um, I got my second choice and my second choice was ENT. And I, I remember seeing a, a kid, uh, this little two-year-old who was now, now it doesn't make sense why he was admitted to the hospital, but maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, maybe I'm just like conflating some memories, but I just remember this kid trying to eat soup. And what he would do is he would take a couple deep breaths and then hold his breath put the soup in his mouth, quickly swallow, and then try and catch his breath again. Well, why was he doing that? Well, he was doing that because he couldn't breathe through his nose. He had big adenoids. And so they did an adenoidectomy. And the next day, kid was eaten. No problem. Like, it was nothing. And to see the recovery from the adenoidectomy, like, you know, it's, it's a really relatively easy recovery. So this minor intervention completely changed this kid's life. I thought that was Incredible, and so that that also, uh, you know, my my friend, who's like I said, is now my partner, also an ENT, had had planted the seed in my head that this was an interesting specialty, but hadn't really that bought that much into it. But then when I did my rotation, I um, I really fell in love with it. I also had a great mentor, and I think people, medical students underestimate the importance of a, of a mentor because they can help guide you through up. And so having someone that can be on the other side of that and help you through it and maybe make some phone calls and is tremendously important. So if you can find someone in the field of your choosing who knows people, then glom onto that person and do not let them go. So I was lucky to have, um, and her name is Linda Brodsky, unfortunately she passed away a few years ago um but i am forever indebted to her actually as is my partner because we both had her as a mentor
2: and she was one of the attendings on your rotation
0: she was a, she is a pediatric otolaryngologist so yeah she was the she was actually the chief of the department of ENT at the children's hospital there were four other ENT's at the hospital um she 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 was well known nationally um and, uh, you know, and, and, and very well connected and, and just a great mentor. Like, you know, she took us under her wing, helped us with research uh, and, you know, helped us get, get our research presented. So we were able to do poster presentations and, and podium presentations and never would have thought or known or known how to do that if, if she hadn't taken us under her wing.
1: You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes.
2: Do you see many people with Meniere's disease? Or does that tend to go more to neuro?
0: No, no, no. I would hope that's us. No, we yeah. see. We manage Meniere's disease. We manage Meniere's disease.
2: Can you think of? Uh, can you think of of a patient who's got many years? Cause that's certainly someone you would, you would have a long-term relationship. And I wonder if you could walk me through the first time you saw them and sort of, you know, what the impact was and, uh, and how things developed.
0: Yeah. So, so I had this one patient who came in and she had ear fullness and, and that was her only complaint ear fullness and it would wax and it would wane. And it was only one side and her hearing test was normal and her exam was normal. And we looked at the eustachian tubes, and that was normal, and everything was normal. And yet, every so often, she'd have these exacerbations of earfulness, and she'd come in and be evaluated. I sent her to other people more specialized than me, and then we, you know, nothing really came about. And then, and then later on, she ended up developing, she came in and she had hearing loss. When it happened, right? We checked her hearing again, and now suddenly there's a drop in hearing. Oh, okay. This gives us the suspicion. So for those who don't know what Meniere's disease is, it is uh, the, the symptom constellation is classically intermittent episodes, episodes lasting generally for hours of vertigo. And so just so we're all on the same page with vertigo, vertigo is defined as the subjective sensation of room spinning. Vertigo is not a diagnosis. Vertigo is a symptom. So it's room spinning, ear fullness, a roaring sound in your ear, and low frequency hearing loss. And if you have all of those symptoms, you have Meniere's disease. If And one of my mentors used to say, if you're looking for patients that have all of those symptoms, you're never, ever going to diagnose Meniere's disease. And so this is kind of a case like that. So ear fullness, but no other. Hard to figure out what's going on. Impossible to figure out. So then, so then, hearing loss, and then later on, vertigo, and then the 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 um, the diagnosis showed itself. Um, you know, worked up with MRIs and all sorts like of, of, of things like that. And the way that that Meniere's is treated is with a low salt diet and um, avoiding certain things that trigger Meniere's, um, and um a uh, diuretic and then sometimes we'll give peri- periodic steroids and sometimes we'll even inject steroid into the in- affected ear so we actually make two holes in the eardrum one is to put the steroids in and the other is to uh, vent to let the air out uh in order to, for for the steroids to diffuse into the uh into the inner ear and and stop the ears attack so um so this person who had this such as, you know, it was, it was a symptom that was just bothering her so much, but we could never come up with an answer. It just took a while. And then, and then eventually it, it presented itself. And now, now she's under, under management for that.
2: And what was the impact on her life of her symptoms before you got them under control?
0: Um, well, so we got them really quickly under control because it wasn't like, you know, sometimes people will suffer for years before either they go, they end up going to the right place, right? They they end up going to an otolaryngologist for it. Um, or, um, uh, but because she, she had been under our care for, for a while to begin with, you know, as soon as something happened, she came in and, and we were able to get things under control. Um, but, but, you know, anyone with mini her included, they, they, they kind of have to live in fear that, that they're going to end up with a many attack. And suddenly just the room is going to start spinning. You know, I had a patient recently also with menieres. And he's been a patient of mine for a long time and he's been on diuretics and he hasn't had an attack in a very long time. And I, and eventually Meniere's tends to burn itself out. And I said, you know, why don't we try decreasing your diuretic? Why don't we maybe try stopping it completely eventually? He said, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm not having any side effects. I'm not having any attacks. Let's just leave this alone. It's working. It's working. Let's leave it alone. Okay, okay just, you know, follow up with me periodically. We'll check in, we'll do a hearing test. We'll check your balance, make sure everything's okay. But, you know, effectively this individual is, is on autopilot. He knows what his triggers are. He avoids those foods. He's very good about it. Uh, circumstantially, he's lost a ton of weight, uh, because he's so strict about his diet. Oh. Cause he, cause he lives in fear. Cause these cause these attacks can be so debilitating. So sometimes the best intervention is not intervention. Um, so sometimes you'll see a patient who has sinus issues. And when someone comes in with sinus issues, it's really important that you take a good history, right? Fine. We say that about everyone. That's first day of medical school. It's all in the history, right? Take a good history, take a good history. Yeah, but so one, I would say like the the word congestion can be very dangerous because the patient will come in and he'll say, you know, I'm very congested. And I've had two sinus surgeries, and I'm still congested. So what do you mean by congested? Because if a patient says to you that they're congested, how do you interpret that? Describe the pain to me. It it, it just hurts. It hurts. Just fi- just fix me. Come on. Um, yeah. So so when they're when they're pointing to their face, it, it really breaks down into, it could mean three different things. It could mean that their nose is blocked and they can't breathe, right? Large adenoids, nasal polyps, deviated septum, God forbid, a nasal tumor, right? So that's what congested means to me when I say I'm congested. Because, you know, if you look at the pharmaceuticals, a decongestant is something that will unblock your nose, right? Afrin is a topical decongestant. So it makes it so that you can breathe again. So that's one definition of of congestion. That's the one that I use. Um, That's not what this gentleman meant. And then there's um, extra mucus in your nose. So so you got to blow your nose a lot. So you're blowing your nose and you're blowing your nose and you're blowing your nose. Why are you blowing your nose so much? Well, there's congestion in it. Um, And for for those who treat patients from the Caribbean, they actually, that's a cold for them. Meaning, like, I blew some cold out into the tissue, right? So, to understand, you know, they're, they're, you got to understand everyone's vernacular. And if you don't, you got to figure it out. You got to ask them. So, so, those are two types of congestion. Then there's the third one where they're actually pointing to their face, they're pointing to their frontal sinuses, they're pointing to their maxillary sinuses, and they're saying, I'm congested, right? And that, that's where it gets a little hairy because that's what this gentleman, said to me, I'm, I've am i had two sinus surgeries and I'm still congested. And so, um, you know, I looked in his nose. I put a camera up his nose. He had had um, sinus surgery. Sinuses were wide open. Whoever had done his sinus surgery had done an excellent job, right? They're nice and open. I can see there's nice, healthy mucosa lining the sinuses. They hadn't taken out too much. They hadn't caused any scarring. Everything looked great. A very professional job. Fantastic. Well, then why am I still congested? Um, and this is where it gets a little tricky, right? Well, well, when are you congested? Well, you know, Whenever the weather changes, that's kind of a tricky thing for someone to say because the weather is always changing. But really, what they were, what he was getting at, was whenever there's crappy weather, right? Whenever there's a storm front coming in, that's where you get. So he's like, the barometric pressure changes, and that's why I'm, where my sinuses get congested. Okay. So maybe it has something to do with the barometric pressure change. Well, that wouldn't really make sense because his sinuses are wide open. I can see into them. There's no difference between the ambient pressure and the pressure in his sinuses. So what what was it that that he was talking about? So we really really dug into it and yeah, whenever there's crappy weather, he gets like pressure in his sinuses. And so, you know, what what I said is come in when it's happening. So he came in, I scoped him again, still normal exam, nice wide open sinuses. We even got a CAT scan to make sure it was normal. What It, it wasn't normal. So, so I gave him some Imetrex, and I said, the next time you feel like it's about to happen, I want you to take this. And two hours later, it's not working for you. Take a second one. Um, and then I, you know, I don't need you to follow up. I just want you to call me. So he called me, and he told me what happened, and I sent him to one of my colleagues, the neurologist, and we diagnosed him with my mig- He was diagnosed with migraines. So this this person had had two sinus surgeries for congestion, and it was just ultimately, you know, you know the 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 original doctor was treating a problem, and I, you know, I'd seen his old CAT scans, and there was some thickening of the lining of the sinuses. This was not a totally normal CAT scan. So, you know, you could think of it in one direction. as like, this person has pressure because there's abnormalities in the sinuses. We're going to open them up. We're going to let the airflow go through. Um, But as it turns out, this individual was actually having a migraine that presented as facial pain or facial pressure rather. And it's important to make the distinction because if you asked him, he said, no, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It's just pressure.
2: So really, four different things there for the wood congestion. You know, one being a blockage to airflow, another being, uh, you know, a r- discharge or rhinorrhea, uh, a- another being pressure, another being pain. Yeah. So, what would you say in general of the highs and the lows of a life in ear, nose, and
0: throat medicine? <laughs> the, the highs and the lows. So you know, the highs are the satisfaction of 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 the patient that leaves and said, I am going to send all of my friends to you. I am going to speak. This was so great. Like I, or, or the patient that's, I've been suffering for so long and you finally figured out what's, what's going on, right? Or, uh, you know, those are, those are the really the, where, where you, you get that satisfaction, right? You did, you did good today. This patient is now better and will continue to be better because of what you did. Um, Or even some of the highs are, are like my regulars, the the ones that come in just you know because they get wax impactions. There's something wrong. Maybe they got an exam in their ear canal, or they have a small ear canal. So I just you know chat them up. Hey, how's you know, the college student? How's, what, what are you studying these days? What's a yeah? You know, you're still with that girl that you were with before, right? Like how's that relationship going? You know, you just you're just chatting it up. It's nice. It's fun. It's casual. It's 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 great. Um, and and the lows are 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 the the patients that aren't doing so well, and, and the maybe and the ones that you might not be able to help, and you got to send them on to colleagues with more expertise than you, knowing that they might not do well, right? And having to be that 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 bearer of bad news, um, and I think it's important to have. Perspective on that. In that, um, you know, I don't, I don't really mind that much being that bearer of bad news because I know that I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Right? Like, someone's got to break this news to this patient. That's how I spin it to myself. Someone's got to break this news to this patient. As much as I'm, I'm not enjoying this. Uh, I know that I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and and i'm willing to you know, accept that responsibility
2: what's a what's an example of that kind of new well like
0: head and neck cancer right like you you diagnose someone you see you, you they come in with a couple months of a sore throat and you stick a camera down their throat and you see this base of tongue cancer um or they present with a neck mass and then you find that base of tongue cancer and you diagnose it and it's already metastasized to their neck. And and because I I in my practice, I don't really do management of oncologic patients. I send them to the academic centers. Really, I think that's a better place for them. Um, but yeah, the you know, cancer. It's what 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 you would think when you're when you're breaking bad news. Um you know, other, what, what are other, some other diagnoses that I might make that are bad, you know, like not, not everybody. So there's, there's something called sudden sensorineural hearing loss where, uh, you just suddenly lose hearing. You just, it could be in the middle of the day. Could be you wake up in the morning and your ear is clogged and you you think it's wax. You think it's fluid. You think it's something. The sooner you get to the doctor, the better your outcome is. Although, you know, there's some thought that that might be a little bit of lead time bias that's that's skewing our data. And we'll put those patients on steroids. You know, I have someone that came in recently and she loves music. She loves music. I think she plays the bass um, in, a, in, a, in a band. You know, I think they perform at weddings. Um, you know, uh, and she came in and she thought it was just going to be wax. I was going to take it out and she'd go back to what she was doing, but no, she had lost some hearing. So I put her on high dose steroids, um, which is how this is treated. Checked back in a week, did a hearing test. She got a little bit of hearing back. So I gave her another dose of steroids, checked in a week later, the needle hadn't moved at all on her hearing um and so we tried some middle ear injections so kind of like menieres same idea you put steroids through the eardrum into the middle ear space we tried that didn't move her hearing and and the frustrating thing about that is is that you know her hearing wasn't terrible but the thing that was really affected is something called her speech discrimination so her ability to to understand language so when our audiologists they put you in the soundproof booth, and one of the things they do is they read you a list of 25 different words, and you got to repeat them back one at a time. It's not like you have to memorize the words. And so I think she got like 25% of them right. I mean, you can't write 25 fits and it's going to be an even number, but you, you get the idea. It was a low number, so it really affected her speech discrimination, and that's like tantamount to having a, a conversation with someone that has one bar on their cell phone. It doesn't matter how loud you make it. So she's not even a hearing aid candidate, right? She's devastated by this news. Devastated. So you know she might be a candidate for a cochlear implant, but you know she she lost she effectively lost her hearing, and all she's getting through that ear is noise. So you know, the, is it both ears? No, one ear one ear one ear so yes she still has one good ear um
2: how did she take the news
0: you know in stride because the thing is there was some time for it to sink in right she came in she found out she lost her hearing she might get it back you know a week later you still might get it back a week later you probably won't but there's a chance you might get it back and then you know And then it's, so, so, you know, the fact that that she was able to ease into the news made it, uh, made it much easier for her.
1: You are listening to Medical Murmurs.
2: You brought up before uh, breaking down or deconstructing the OTC meds. And I was wondering, you know, I see some general practitioners and emergency physicians using uh, antihistamines for people that have viral syndromes. And, you know, I haven't seen any evidence of the efficaciousness of that. I'm wondering, you know, when do you actually use each of the component medications that are OTC? All
0: right. So I'll give you the spiel.
2: Okay. Okay.
0: So, this, the spiel is, if you're having pain, whether it's throat pain or sinus pain, then you treat that with a pain medicine, right? And that's going to be one of your non like ibuprofen or naproxen. All right, if you're having congestion, and congestion being defined as not being able to breathe out of your nose, right? Not being defined as facial pressure, because as we discussed before, facial pressure, form of pain, treat that with your ibuprofen or your naproxen. So, if you're having nasal obstruction... um than pseudoephedrine or oxymetazoline nasal spray or Breathe Right strips or some combination thereof. Now, pseudoephedrine, as I'm sure you're aware, is with the pharmacists. It does not require a prescription, but you do have to sign for it and show them your license so that you don't buy a lot of it and cook it into crystal meth. So pseudoephedrine, but who can't use pseudoephedrine? Well, older men, if they have a prostate problem, and most older men do have at least the beginnings of a prostate problem because it can put you into urinary retention, but it also can drive your blood pressure, which I'm sure you also know. So that's, those are the limitations of that medication. You also don't want to take it before bed because it's a bit of an upper, right? Because it's a stimulant. It increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure. Also, if you have any type of arrhythmia, it's, it's a bad idea. Consult your doctor before taking the medication. Please don't mistake this for medical advice. I am not your doctor. And what you're listening to right now is not a doctor-patient relationship. Sorry, there are lawyers out there and they're after us. Okay. So uh, then there's oxymetazoline, which is Afrin, which is great, only it can lead to dependence, but it's great for colds because colds last a couple of days. So use that so you can breathe better through your nose. Your life will be a whole lot better. Um, and then Breathe Right Strips work for some noses, but, but not others. So that's for congestion and drainage. And then um, for cough, I'm a firm believer that nothing works for cough unless you have undiagnosed asthma, which I see. All the time, because people think, well, when I lie down, my cough gets worse, and that's because of my postnasal drip. No, it's not. It's just because nobody diagnosed your asthma, and you need to be using an inhaler. Um, but other, other than that, sucking candies and uh, voice rest are what I recommend for cough. I do not recommend uh, Tesselon or um, Delsim or any of those other medications. But, but to, to what you were saying with the cold medicines, so uh, I recommend Benadryl. Why? Because then you at least you'll sleep because there's nothing worse. <laughs> the only thing that's worse than being sick is being sick and tired. So at least take some Benadryl. But the other thing about Benadryl and the antihistamines in general is they do, quote, dry you up a little because they do have some weak anticholinergic effects. So it's not the antihistamine effect because when you have a cold, you're not your mast cells are not blowing up. There's not some massive release of histamine. No, but if there are some anticholinergic effects then that can that can dry up your mucosa a little bit kind of like an ipratropium nasal spray might do only not as effectively so yeah so that's that's the thing pain ibuprofen or proxen stuffiness afrin pseudofed, breathe rate strips cough nothing and uh and then benadryl for sleep that's my deconstructed cold remedy
2: thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me There's been i've i just I, I loved uh, the OTC spiel. I, I, I loved hearing about uh, your case with Meniere's. It was just fascinating. Thank you very much.
0: It was my pleasure. My pleasure. Take care.
1: This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions, such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. Check it out.